0: of coming before you on a Sunday morning and sharing God's Word. Pastor Jim, Pastor William, and myself, we are preaching and teaching through the, word, through the book of Nehemiah while our congregation, while this portion of the body of believers seeks God's next Leader seeks God's next senior pastor. It is an honor and a privilege to be here before you this morning. And I'm so thankful that you're here for everyone joining us online through Facebook Live or anyone who would listen to this message through our church website at some time in the future. We are glad you are here as well. We're so glad that this technology exists, that we can share God's word not only in this room, but anywhere where there would be someone who would listen to understand. I'm so thankful. I'm gonna go off script for just a moment. I'm so thankful. I am so thankful that this is not a museum or an art gallery where, where we gather together and we only focus on us and our individual relationship with God. I am so happy that this is a congregation, a body of believers that have the heart and the passion to go into that area where somebody would ask the question, why in the world would you go there? To hold the hand of a child to minister into the life of a bus driver, to reach out to somebody who may never have heard the name Jesus Christ before in their life. I am so thankful that that is the heart that God has given this congregation. And I pray at the end of this message, at the end of this message, you will be able to remember that moment that Barbara just shared. Because it's not gonna be that different than the moment that we're going to experience with God's children in Nehemiah chapters 7 and chapter 8. As, As Jim went to remove this chair from the stage, I asked him to leave it up here. Because although I can't visualize anything, I do not have that ability. For this morning, for me it's going to represent... The fact that Christ is right here, not only with me, but with us, and he wants to have an intimate moment with each of you through the words that are going to be shared. Arthur prayed for me this morning, and he said, let John be 100% empty of John, and let John only convey what the Holy Spirit has given him. Arthur, I thank you so much for that prayer, and I pray, I pray that that's exactly what happens today. Nehemiah chapters 7 and 8. In the end of Nehemiah chapter 6, the wall has been completed. Pastor Williams spoke last week. One of the the items that he brought up, and I don't know know if, if you gathered the significance. He talked about the completion of the wall, and we focused on the D words, and we focused on Sanballat, and we focused on Tobiah, and we focused on Geshem and the opposition that they brought. But even in and amongst all of that, the wall was completed in 52 days. I want you to think about that for a moment. Please think about that, 52 days. You may remember when we talked about Nehemiah chapter three and we gave some of the scope of the wall that it would have started some place over about in this, in this aisle and it would have extended the width over to some place about in this aisle and it, and it would have been ranging in height from 15 to 30 feet, that ceiling is 20 feet, so let's take an average of 20 feet. So a wall, one stone on top of the other, placed by hand. They didn't have pickup trucks, they didn't have backhoes, they didn't have anything else. One stone on top of the other, and in in, in, in Nehemiah 4, we learned that sometimes they had to do their building while holding a spear or a sword in their hand to protect them against those who would seek to stop God's will. A wall this wide, one stone on top of the other, 20 feet wide in 52 days. That's a miracle of God in and of itself. And I want you to remember, I'm going to ask you to remember that time frame of 52 days because a little bit later in this message, it's going to come together and it's, and it's going to mean something. Nehemiah chapter seven and eight, that is an incredible amount of God's scripture to try and go through in a brief period of time on a Sunday morning. So there's, so I'm going to run through we are about to run through some scripture and there's a section of Nehemiah chapter 7 that we are going to just give the highlight reel of. I encourage you, I encourage you during this week, spend some time in Nehemiah chapter 7 and chapter 8. And, if, and, and, and although we will not be able to cover everything that this scripture reveals to us, if you would ever like to get together with me after this service, I'll be in the prayer room or I'll be right down here in front. If you would like to get together at some point in time and talk about what the rest of God has inside of Nehemiah chapter seven and eight, I would appreciate that opportunity. Invite me to one of your life groups. Let's get a cup of coffee. I would love to talk about this more. And we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter seven or in chapter eight, there is a model of that, God's people coming together to talk about and learn about God's word. The wall is complete. What next? The wall is complete. Now, what do the people of God do? If it were me, pragmatic John, the temple was built and the altar was built by Ezra some 75 to 50 years previously. The wall has just now been completed and it was completed in 52 days. What do we do now? Remember, Nehemiah had heard that the the city, the town of Jerusalem lay in ruin. This means that the houses and the structures also lay in ruin. Pragmatic John, the next thing that I would do, I would start building houses so that the people can return. I'd be like the real estate developer. The people aren't going to live here unless we have a few houses, unless we have a few model homes to show them. That's what, that's what Pragmatic John would start doing. Let's begin to read and let's see what Nehemiah, what God's man does next. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set, I, Nehemiah had set upon the door and, and the gatekeeper, The singer and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother, I gave my brother Hanani and my brother Hananiah, the governor of the area, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God fearing man than many. So the next thing that Nehemiah does, the wall is built. We have physical security. We have protection of a wall and we have protection of gates. But what good is a wall if you don't have somebody to stand on that wall and defend the people? What good is a gate if you don't have someone entrusted with the safety and security of opening that gate at the appropriate time and closing that gate at the appropriate time? So Nehemiah sets in place, one of the first things he does is set in place physical security. Because guess what? Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, they're still out there. They are still in opposition of God's people and God's mission in the city of Jerusalem. And the next thing, the next thing, he brings the singers and the Levites. The singers were actually Levites. The next thing that he brings into God's house or God's city are teachers of God's word. The Levites were the priests who would teach God's word to the people. So the next thing that Nehemiah did was he made sure that the spiritual that the spiritual connection with God would be taken care of by bringing in and appointing the teachers of God's word. And then he put in place governance. He put in place, he put Hanani and Hananiah in charge of Jerusalem. So he started putting in governance so there would not be chaos and disorder. There would be some order and there would be some governance and there would be some, some leadership besides himself in the city of Jerusalem. So this was the next thing that Nehemiah did. And I think one of the most important things that Nehemiah did out of all three of these was bring in the Levites to teach God's word because Nehemiah was more concerned with the spiritual health and well-being of God's people than he was with them having a house to live in. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, I wish I could see. Let them let them that stand shut the gates behind them. So Nehemiah put in place guardians. He put in place guardians to, to stand on the wall, to stand at the gates, and then he put in place security protocols. This is... This is very, very logical. Okay, he gave the people who were entrusted with the safety and the guardianship of the people of Jerusalem, he gave them a protocol of what to do. Do not open the doors until the sun is high, until the sun is hot, until the sun is high in the sky. Don't open the doors at night or in the dark. You don't know who's hiding in the shadows right outside the doors. And, and while you're standing guard... When you have opened the door in the sunlight so that you can see who is there, close the door so that our enemies cannot storm the gates and storm the walls. A physical protocol of protection. And then what did Nehemiah do next? He recognized that there were hardly any people there and that the houses had not been built. Now, I skipped over all of those important things. I went straight to building houses. Now, Nehemiah recognizes that there's not very many people. And there might not be very many people because there's not very many houses to live in. So obviously, the next thing that Nehemiah does is he is going to start building houses. Finally, Nehemiah and I are aligned. This is a wonderful moment. Then my God... I was once asked, what is your favorite word? This was by a young woman at a counter at a pool store. What is your favorite word? It was a very interesting conversation. What is your favorite word? So I thought for a moment and I said, my favorite word is grace. I asked her, what is your favorite word? And she said, antediluvian. You should go look that up. (laughs) As I have read and studied and learned from God's word, grace is still my favorite word. But I have learned how to love this statement, and then God. And then God. No matter what happened before, no matter what had happened in the moments before this, and then God. God was in the middle of what is happening. It was an acknowledgement that, and then God is going to do something incredible, or God is going to do something in and through his people. And when Nehemiah said this, he said, then God. No, he said then, my God. In that moment, Nehemiah acknowledged that his God, the creator of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth was his one and only God. This is an incredible moment. And while he's in the middle of that, while he is declaring, then my God, he is also saying something else. God is mine, and I belong to him. I pray that each and every one of us, in our daily lives, in our daily walks, when asked, do you love me, we would say yes. When asked, who do you belong to? Our only answer would be, I belong to God. And he is my God and I am his. Then God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people of, of enroll, to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of genealogy. And I found the book of genealogy. Jerusalem had laid in ruin. Absolute ruin. All of the walls, all of the houses. The only thing that had been rebuilt was the altar and the temple. 60 years before those were completed. So nothing had happened in Jerusalem for the last 60 or so years. And then he found the book of the genealogy. So what God does next is not start to rebuild houses. He starts to rebuild people. Going to Mexico is not about building a church. It's about building people. Our lives are not about building things or monuments. It is about building lives and building people. And I found the book of genealogy of those who had come up at first, and I found written in it. Remember, I I promised you that there's going to be a moment where we have to go through a highlight reel. We have verses 6 through 72. In verses 6 through 72, we will see genealogy and we will see heritage. We will see the importance of genealogy and heritage. It was so important for them to know who they were and who they were living with. They had it written down in a book. Then there was, we're going to see an example of exclusivity, and I encourage you to read this. There were a group of men. There were a group of men who came forward to be Levites, but their genealogy did not prove out that they could be Levites, so they were not allowed to be Levites. There was exclusivity. Not everybody gets to do everything. We each have a purpose, and those men's purpose was not to be Levites. They had another purpose. And then we see gifts from God's people. So, when I first read about that, I thought, okay, the New Church of Jerusalem is having their first offering, and then I read about it, and I read about that offering, and it wasn't an offering where they passed the plates, it wasn't an offering where they got up and prayed and asked the people to give, the people just gave. The people came forward and gave, and I took the measurements of only gold and silver. I didn't calculate out the bowls and the clothing and everything else that the people brought, but only the gold and only the silver. And I took those units of measure that they gave us in Nehemiah chapter seven, and I converted them to ounces. And then I converted those ounces to value of today, of gold and silver in today's dollars. The first offering and the new church of Jerusalem was between 17 and $18 million, and nobody asked for anything. The people brought what they had. Why? For God's purpose, for God's work, so that Jerusalem could be built and so that no one would do without. This is the summary of verses 6 through 72. But then we close out chapter 7 with verse 73. So the priests... The Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns, and when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. I'm not going to focus on the seventh month right now, but I want you to remember, because in just a little bit, when we get into chapter eight, the seventh month is going to become very, very, very important. Remember, I asked you to remember 52 days. Now I'm going to ask you to remember the seventh month. Chapter seven, because I know there are a lot of us who'd like to be able to fill in the blanks. On your bulletin, in chapter seven, through Nehemiah, God reestablishes security, guardianship, and protection over Jerusalem. He establishes teachers so that people would be able to hear and understand and know God's word. He establishes leadership for Jerusalem, he establishes security protocols, and he establishes heritage and genealogy. All of that and more is contained in chapter 7. And then we move to chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. The people gathered in unity. You may remember from Nehemiah chapter 3, one of the key focuses in Nehemiah chapter 3 was the unity of the people. And all the people gathered in unity into the square before the water gate. When I'm reading through God's word, when I'm reading through God's word, I give myself permission to stop and ask why there? Why at the water gate? Is there some significance that God has inside of his word that we can bring out of God's word? Why the water gate? The water gate, Ira and Arthur were recently in Israel and outside the old city of Jerusalem, they would have seen the Kidron Valley, and they might have seen the, the remnants of the Gishon or the Gihon well. From the Watergate, people would have gone out into the Kidron Valley, they would have gone to the, the Gihon well and they would have drawn water to bring into the city. Through the Watergate, through, through the Watergate, I, I keep thinking about <clears throat> the Watergate Hotel, I apologize. Through. <laughs> the water gate that has nothing to do with the Watergate Hotel. Through the water gate, people would have brought in water. That water would have many meanings, but two of the primary meanings that it would have had for the people of the city of Jerusalem would have been physical cleaning, cleansing, because you had to go through a process of cleansing before you brought your offering to God. It would have have been the source of cleansing and it would have been the source of life. Without water, there is no life. By the Watergate, a source for cleansing and for life, physical cleansing and physical life for God's people. I believe, and the commentaries that I have read support this, that one of the primary reasons that it was chosen to worship and to, and to, and to do what's going to happen next at the Watergate was because water represented physical life And they told Ezra the scribe, they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. When I first read this, when I first read the book of the law of Moses, I thought about the Ten Commandments. They're going to go get the Ten Commandments, and they're going to have Ezra read them. But then as I thought and I pondered and I studied upon this, Moses received more than ten laws on Mount Sinai when they were wandering in the the desert or in the wilderness. Moses received over 600, some call them the rabbinical, 600 plus laws. The book of the law of Moses. So then I started thinking, okay, they're going to bring the book of 600, over 600 laws, and they're going to start reading it. I confess, I don't know how long I would last before I might take a nap if somebody starts reading the laws of the, of the six, reading 600 laws, one after the other. But then as I studied more, as I studied more, I learned and I realized that the book of the law of Moses, it was not, it was not the Ten Commandments. It was not the 600 plus rabbinical laws. It was the Pentateuch. It was the Torah. It's what we in Christian circles call Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They sent Ezra the scribe to bring Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that the Lord had commanded to Israel. They had been separated. They had been separated from these books for so long. They sent Ezra to get them. So Ezra, they sent Ezra the scribe to go get the books. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Here we have the seventh month and we have the first day again. The seventh month is going to be very important very soon. As I was going through this, I went back and I read in Leviticus. And I have been looking for I've been looking for a reason to make some noise with my shofar for a very long period of time. And in in Leviticus chapter 23, you can check it out. In Leviticus chapter 23, the first day of the month, they would blow the trumpet. So let's see what happens. This could be a disaster and it could work really well. I have no idea. How you get him to stop, start applauding. <laughs> <laughs> so on the first day of the seventh month, they gathered. Ezra, the scribe, stood on a raised wooden platform made for the occasion. Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hekiah, Hilkiah, and Maseah stood beside him on his right. Badiah, Mishael, Malchiah, Hashem, I promise I practiced. Zechariah and Meshuliam stood beside him on his left. Thirteen men. Ezra, standing higher than the other people, opened the book in front of the people. And as he opened it, and as he opened it, all of the people stood. The thirteen men that were flanking Ezra The 13 men that were flanking him, they were the Levites. They were the conveyors. They were the teachers. On any given Wednesday night, we have a Wanna back here. And in my Truth and Training, at the beginning of every time of Truth and Training, I have one little boy and one little girl come forward to pray over our time together. And I ask them two questions. And I say, When we pray, what are we doing? They say, We're talking to God. And I say, How do we talk to God? They said, we do this with reverence and respect. In that moment, when God's word was opened, they stood up. And as Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all of the people answered, amen and amen, so be it, so be it, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads. And they worshiped God with their faces pointed towards the ground. As we were singing earlier, and as, as, as we sing on any given Sunday morning, I have the privilege and honor of, of being able to sit in that chair in the back. Some of you have started to call it the amen chair, um, and I've also learned that my voice carries a little bit further than I ever thought that it did. But I sit back there, and I see, I see the body of believers. I see the children of God. I see the people in this room. I see them with their hands raised when Arthur is leading us in glorious praise and worship preparing our hearts to enter into this moment. I see people with their hands raised, with their faces up towards God. I see some people with their heads bowed down, all singing and worshiping, just like the people of Israel. In that moment, they wanted nothing more. They wanted nothing more than to sit in in that spot and look across and see God and experience him one-on-one in an intimate way with their faces to the ground. And, and the 13 Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense. They gave the meaning. They gave the Understanding so that the people could understand what was being read. Ezra read from the scrolls. The Levites came out and they taught the people what the reading meant so that everyone could understand. Every man, every woman, every child, everyone of age to be able to understand, every servant, every visitor, every person was welcome to receive and understand the meaning of the word of God. And Nehemiah who was the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to the people this day is holy to the Lord your God do not mourn or weep for the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he Nehemiah said no Ezra then he Ezra said to them go your way eat the fat drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. This is is not a moment of eat, drink, and be merry. This is a moment of take some physical sustenance, take some food so that you will be strengthened. Get something to drink, and if you see anyone out there, if you see anyone out there who is doing without, if you see anyone who does not have anything, share what you have with them. Share what we have with the people of Las Calentias. Okay, thank you. Share what we have with the people who have nothing. To anyone who has. For this day, it is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is our strength. I love that Arthur sang that song this morning. As you were singing that song, I don't know what it meant to you. I don't know what it meant to you, but whatever it meant to you... It ties into this message. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord was their strength. As Jerusalem was being rebuilt, it was not about stone and mortar. It was not about anything else. It was about the joy of the Lord. When Liz, when Liz came up and gave that incredible prayer, Liz, where are, there you are, she touched on the joy of our relationship with God. I hope you were listening I hope you heard those words because they were so very true. Joy is different than happiness. It wasn't the happiness is in the Lord. It is that our joy, it is that our absolute joy is in the Lord and that is our strength to endure, to praise, to worship, to share, to give, to do it all. So the Levites calmed the people saying, "Be quiet, for this day is holy." do not be grieved and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them the levites had given them understanding god had given them understanding they not only read what was in god's word they were given understanding of what it means on the second day the heads of the fathers houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites, they all came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. They had just gone through, they had just received Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They had gained an understanding of it, but that wasn't enough, the next day, the very next day, they said, we want more, we, want, we are hungry for more of that. When I go home, when I go home this afternoon, I pray that the first thing that I want is to spend more time with God and more time in his word. I pray that for each and every one of you. Yes, we have lawns to mow. Yes, we have things that we have to do. But I pray that after we are filled and given an understanding of God's word, that it would give us a hunger for more and that we would receive that and that we would crave that. And they found it written in the law and they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. When they opened the scrolls, when they opened the scrolls on the seventh, the first day of the seventh month, they had no idea what was happening. God, remember, 52 days. That's a big wall. 52 days, that was a miracle. That was an absolute miracle. God ordained Nehemiah to come to Jerusalem just when he did. God ordained and God built that wall in 52 days so that on the first day of the seventh month, his people could observe the festival of the booths. You may remember recently we teached through, uh, we, taught, we, teached, we taught through psalms. We taught through several chapters in psalms and in one of those chapters we learned that the people of Israel were called to Jerusalem three times a year. Wants to celebrate the Passover? Wants to celebrate the Passover? Wants to celebrate the Festival of Weeks, and wants to celebrate the Feast of Booths. The Festival of Booths on the first day of the seventh month month. God put all of this together. Have you ever spent, had, a, had a moment in your life where you were able to look in the rearview mirror and see everything that happened? And while you were in the middle of it, it was absolute chaos and you had no idea where any of it was going. But when, you, when God brought everything together and you were able to look in the rearview mirror, you look back and you go, oh my goodness, God's hand was on every moment of that experience. God's hand was on every moment of this experience so that his people in his town could celebrate his word and receive his word at an ordained time. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all the towns in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and they brought them. And they made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square of the water gate, and in the square of the gate of Ephraim, and the assembly of the people who had returned from captivity. These are people who had been in exile. These are people who had been in absolute exile. And the the people who returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths from the days of Yeshua, from the days of Joshua. Remember Joshua, walls of Jericho, Joshua leading people into the Holy Land. From the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing. If you go back and you read through God's word, you will find you will find evidence, historical evidence, that they had celebrated the festival, the Feast of Booths, a number of times from the time of Joshua to this day. So at first it seems that this might be in conflict. But then when you read it and you gather its meaning, for from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, they had physically experienced the festival of booths. To this day, the people of Israel had not done so, and there was great rejoicing. What they had not done since the time of Joshua was absolutely experience the intimacy of the relationship with God, of that moment they, they had physically, they had physically experienced the festival of booths, but they had not experienced it spiritually. This time, be, because they had been separated from Jerusalem and from their word they yearned for it they longed for it they needed it they wanted it and now they had it and there was great rejoicing and mourning over what they had not experienced they were reunited they were reunited for a common purpose and they and they rejoiced have you ever lost something I've lost a lot of things. Have you ever lost something that was so dear and treasured to you that it broke your heart? I don't know why God does some of the things that he does, but this morning I was speaking with Lisa Hernandez in the office, and somehow we got on the subject of losing things. And so at this moment, again, I'm going to go way off script, and I'm probably going to take a couple extra minutes. I'll apologize but I think this might mean something to you because it means something to me. You see this ring? It's made out of gold. It's got a diamond in it. It has a precious stone and it has precious metals in it. On two occasions in my history, I have lost this ring. And for a moment, Lisa and I, I shared a story with her. We were moving from Miami to Atlanta Lori and Michael had gone on ahead. I had the last vestige of our belongings in the back of my green pickup truck, and we, I was headed to Atlanta from Miami, and I stopped at my parents' house in Palmetto, Florida. Spent the night there. I didn't want my computer to be stolen out of the back of the truck, so I brought it into the house. In the morning, I'm reloading the back of the truck, and it's got a, it's got a tone-out cover on it, and this is too many details. I apologize. I didn't want to lose my grip and scratch the truck with my ring, so I took my ring off. Mistake number one. I took my ring off and I set it on the bumper of the truck. Mistake number two. And I got everything secured and then I saw something and then I went on and the next thing I knew I was 25 miles up I-75 and I had that defibrillator on the chest moment. (laughs) Oh, I have lost my ring. I left my ring behind. It was on the bumper of the truck. I gently pulled over. I gently pulled over on the side of I-75 believing for just a moment with a little bit of hope that it would still be sitting there. No, things didn't work out that way. So in a panic, what do I do? It's it's a moment. Do I keep on driving and go beg my wife's forgiveness? Do Do I lose this thing that I cherish? I don't cherish it. I don't cherish this because it's made out of gold and because it's got a diamond in it. I cherish it because... My wife, Lori, she went one day and she designed and had this ring and one that matches it exactly, only sized differently for her. She had had this made and gave it to me. The gold and the diamond are not what matters to me. The fact that it was a gift from the woman that I love, it was a gift to me, that's what mattered. So I turned around, went back to Palmetto, Went back to the driveway, I looked around the driveway, I scoured the apron, I looked everywhere and there was no ring to be found. Pragmatic, logical, John, I set a quarter, a nickel, and a dime on the back bumper of the truck. I rolled down the windows, I turned off the air conditioning, I turned off the radio, and so I backed out and I'm listening for the ting, 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 ting. And I 'm pulling out and I'm driving, and I hear nothing, and I 'm watching in the rearview mirror, and I 'm watching the road in front of me for any glint of gold. i 'm watching all of that. And I drive out. Nothing happens. I drive through the neighborhood. Nothing happens. I get out to the main road and I turn right and I hear it ting 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 ting. I stopped my truck right in the middle of the road. i didn 't care. I did not care. And I went over and I found the quarter and I found the nickel. I couldn 't find the dime. And there, and, and I looked in that area. I'm digging through gravel, I'm digging through grass, I'm digging through weeds, and I found nothing. Hi. Oh man, you guys are going to be standing there a while. Um. <clears throat> and nothing, no ring to be found. So I got back in my truck. I am, I am dejected. I am. I am mourning because I have lost something that was precious to me. I was not experiencing something that my wife had given to me. I lost something. And I drove up to the next main intersection. I said, you know what? I'm going to try one more time. And I went through the intersection. And as I, as I pulled through that intersection, I said, you know what? I'm going to stop one more time. And I pulled my truck over to the side of the road and I went and I l- physically laid down in the middle of the intersection to get my eye as close to the road so that I could look for and find any bump in the road. And I looked through that entire intersection. I must, I don't know how long, I spent a long time there. And I could not find that ring, it was gone. And my truck is over there and I'm standing on this corner of the intersection. And as I'm walking back, As I'm walking back, I look down and I see a hole in the asphalt about that big around and about that deep. And sitting right in the middle of that hole was my ring. (laughs) Why did I tell you that story? I will not try and compute the importance of this ring towards the importance of God restoring his people to Jerusalem or to the importance of God restoring his word and the festival of booths and their understanding of his word, I will not try and pretend that this ring is anywhere near as important as all of that. But if I cherish this ring and that brief moment of separation from the gift that my wife had given me caused me that much anguish and then that much joy. How much joy You think that the people of Israel, that the people of that time felt when they were restored to their homes and when they got to taste and touch and hear God's word for the first time in so long? I pray, I pray that every moment you have in God's word. I pray that every moment you have, sitting in a chair across from Jesus, is just that precious, and I pray that you would think back to the people of Israel in those moments, and the importance. I know we like to fill in blanks. Chapter eight, we experience the impact of God's word on God's people. We experience God's people being restored and the revival that followed. We experience God's proclamation of the word throughout the land. Nehemiah chapters seven and eight. And if you give me just one more moment. Jonathan, if you could go back to the very, very first slide, please. Thank you. A uh, then and now. Then they met at the Watergate. They read the book of Moses. In, uh, they read the book of the law of Moses in front of the Watergate. It symbolized physical cleansing, physical life, and they read the word of God. It represented spiritual life. How does that, it's the Old Testament, how does that translate to our lives today or to the life of Christ in the New Testament? One day, one day, Christ comes upon a Samaritan woman and she's standing at a well and he asks her for a drink. She says, Sir, you're a Jew. Why are you talking to me? I have nothing to give you a drink with. And he says, If you drink from this water, you will be thirsty again. But if you drink, From the water I give you, you will never thirst again. And she says, sir, give me that water of life. In the Old Testament, in the time of Nehemiah, we had physical life from water. We had physical cleansing from water. We had the word of God. In the New Testament, in the New Testament, Christ gives us spiritual life and spiritual cleansing through himself. So many things from the Old Testament point to Christ and to the New Testament. And there's one other thing I'd like for you to pull and take home with you from this message. Then, Ezra was the high priest and he was tasked with maintaining, sharing, and keeping, obeying the laws of the book of Moses. The Levites were given the task of teaching the law of the book of Moses to the people so that they would understand it. And then the people would go and proclaim what they had learned in their villages, in their towns, and on the hillsides. Today, Today we have a high priest. And his name is Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says so clearly, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. I came to fulfill the law. Why? Because you could not on your own. I came to do it for you. Ezra, Jesus And then we had the Levites to teach. Today, we have pastors, we have Sunday school teachers, we have youth group. If you want to have an experience, Jeremy Toro was going to come up and give a testimony this morning, but he's not feeling well, so he could not do it. If you want to have an experience, go on to Facebook Live, go to the Avalon Church page, and go to last Sunday night when when Jeremy brought a message about the tabernacle, about prayer, Go watch that. It was incredible. We have teachers on Sunday morning. We have teachers on Sunday night. We have teachers in Awana on Wednesday night. We have men's ministry. We have women's ministry. We have, we have one-on-one discipleship. We have small groups. We have life groups. We have teachers who convey the meaning of God's word. But you see, then it was the Levites' responsibility to give us understanding. In a small room in Jerusalem, Jesus met with his disciples, and he gave them the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit, it is through the Holy Spirit, that we gain understanding of God's word. We cannot discern God's word without the benefit of the Holy Spirit. Then the Levites did it. Now God has indwelt himself inside of us so that we can understand the meaning of his word. We have a high priest. His name is Jesus Christ. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it because we couldn't. He did it on our behalf. We have teachers who convey the meaning of God's word to us, and He has given us His Holy Spirit so that we could understand. Then and now, so much of the Old Testament points to the New Testament and to Jesus Christ. You've received God's word, you've had it explained. What it means. Through the Holy Spirit, you will gain understanding. And now I beseech you to go into the hills, to go into the villages, to go into your neighborhoods, to go into publics and proclaim what God has given you. It is precious, it is more precious than gold, it is more precious than diamonds. And I beseech you to go proclaim it to anyone who will listen and understand. I thank you, I love you, and I'm done.